This is Curated Chill, the Aspire Design and Home Podcast. I'm Josh Cooperman, Director of Broadcast Media for Hudson One Media. On the podcast today is Natalie Officer, Principal Designer with her namesake firm, Natalie O Design. This Louisville, Kentucky-based design firm is creating emotional moments, powerful design statements, and doing so with an ethos guided by some poignant principles of design, like quality design being a function of inspired artisans an understanding of how the clients live first, and individuality, and how that defines the work. Not social media, not trending concepts or the latest new and shiny objects. Simple, right? I would suggest that simple in and of itself is an art form. And simple does not mean easy. Natalie is a storyteller, and this is her story. We were sort of talking about the origin and getting into design and getting into the business. And it's really interesting to me because I have found that there are a few different ways many of the most incredible creative designers get into the business. One is they uh, spend some time in the offices of other designers and they, and they learn from someone else. They go out and they hang their own shingle and they just try to figure it out along the way or they do it the way you did. You Mm -hmm. start off doing something entirely and completely different and then sort of fall backwards into, into the business. How did that happen? Well, we, um, I grew up in a very small town in Indiana and the world came to me through magazines. So the only way I imagined myself out of a small town surrounded by cornfields, though it is a lovely place, was through magazines and through the idea that I could go anywhere and do anything when that magazine arrived in the mailbox. And so um, my college, my I was a first generation college student. My study initially was theater and, and I wanted to do all these kind of avant-garde things. And, and my mom sat me down and And she said, okay, you can do fashion, that's fine. If you choose fashion, that's great. And I understand why. I mean, I'm a kid who had a schedule of like, I wore jeans on Monday, I can't wear jeans on Tuesday. Like must, you know, I had a schedule of how I planned to dress for the week um, on very limited resources. So she said, you can do theater and you can do fashion, but you better be really good because you're gonna have to eat. And I'm basically done feeding you. And so, Okay, so I ended up um, getting a degree in business through the um, Indiana University's Kelly School of Business and then also having a fashion marketing and merchandising uh, degree. I did do some really heavy coursework in, uh, in fashion and sewing and um, I loved that. But ultimately my first true job after waitressing and all the other things you do in college, but uh, was as a buyer for Marshall Fields, which is a Chicago-based company, went to, to work in Minneapolis and really thought that that would be my path forever. It was a great company. Um, they were uh, partners with Target. And in fact, Target was the small company and Marshall Fields was the big company. And then it cannibalized, truthfully. And Target was so well done. Um, Just everything it did for the industry was like on point. You know, it it was back in the days when vendors would bring you bribes, right? They'd bring you like 
oh, you like this leather bag? How many would you like to buy this season? You know, and Target kind of came in and and made everything very structured and, and really lovely um, and fair and um, taught me so much about the algorithm of buying, you know, how that works, um, what people, how are things merchandised? Why do we buy the things we do? Uh, and we just had a really, I had a really good baptism into business from that degree, you know, from that side of things. Um, and then evolved and worked for a fashion designer named Sigurd Olson, um, who did really well, was part of the bigger Liz Claiborne body, you know, when Lucky and Kate Spade and all these brands were in that portfolio. Um, spent a ton of time in New York, a ton of time traveling, um, but my, my home base became Chicago and I thought I would be in fashion forever, truthfully. Um, I don't know that there was a second question there, but how I fell into interior design um, was that essentially Federated bought everything. So they bought up Marshall Fields, they bought up Macy's, became everywhere. And I was really spoiled. I had had a tremendous um, on-ramp to retail and fashion and going to the shows and going and doing the buying. And, Sigrid was an incredible designer. And when I realized that Macy's was going to, we we're going to walk into every major department store from New York to LA, and they were going to have almost the same thing. My appetite for that was just kind of done. It just didn't interest me. It wasn't artful. It wasn't curated. It, and Federated has done wonderful things. I just got really spoiled with getting to hand curate and work with artisans and work with true creatives. And that really drew me into interior design. There's so, more, I can pause there. <laughs> no, I, I, I love that. But what I wanted to ask you is how did that experience in retail and fashion shape the way that you design? from a standpoint of how did the visual merchandising of a, of a showroom help you craft your individual design style? So there's a little bit of a segue between that career, chosen career. And um, while I was flying all over, uh, I fell in love with this cute boy from a cornfield and who also happened to be living in Chicago. And we started doing gut rehabs of these three-story graystones. And my role in that was we were dual income, no kids. You know, every weekend we were hanging our own shingles. We were uh, getting the DVDs, DVDs, yeah, and pizza on Friday and Saturday and making sure that we were doing everything right. And that was really my, my playground. We had, we did three of those. Um, before 2008, and it was like going back and getting a, a whole nother degree, you know, really understanding how hardwood meets, you know, a tile and how the angles and the light. And so I applied what I had learned from all of the visual merchandising into those homes, but also jumped into the Chicago market when it was on fire of staging homes and really teaching people how to travel through each room. And what's weird about that is I staged homes for about three or four years 
And in that time frame, we moved to, to Louisville. And at the end of those homes selling, people would call me and say, you know, I think you staged our home and we bought it because of the things that you did. Would you come back and design it? And mm -hmm. I never imagined that I was going to ever call myself an interior designer. I, I, in fact, for years, I called myself everything but an interior designer because I was not classically trained, because I had not gone, you know, to the right school or what have you. And at the same time, I think there's a street credibility and the ability to speak with contractors and craftspeople and welders because that's what I've always done. So um, the, the hardy part, the hardy part is what I like, you know, um, the paints and the, the lighting and, and the materials, that's second to me, the structure, the architecture, the metal, the stone, all of that is primary to me, but, it, but it's still all how you dance through a space and how um, you appeal to the eye and the psychology of selling somebody on a house. How do you get them to love it? It's about the site map and how you walk through it. So it's a long story. Yeah, um, the, the long Sakuda's path getting from, from point A to point B. So when did, you, when did you decide that interior design was for you? And then how did you wind up saying, you know, you know what, Kentucky is the best place for an interior designer to to craft their to craft their their firm i didn't say that i never <laughs> said that and i haven't said it today so <laughs> i would say that life brought me here yeah we had um we married of course had a child and it was the busiest year of my life when it came to staging i was you know and i had quit my full-time 401k job right um newly married while i wasn't young early 30s i it was unstable it felt unstable for me as an independent female of the 90s going okay well i'm 30 i'm getting married and i'm going to quit my job because that's not anything i ever thought i would do um but we wrapped up those three homes we sold them by the hair of our chinny chin chin and we moved to louisville and then within months, my husband said, we're gonna move to London for a year. And I had all these jobs kind of going, these little kind of spinning plates jobs, you know? And we moved to London, England. And when I came back, I said, okay, if I'm gonna do this, I'm just going to do it. And we switched the LLC from, you know, staging into interior design. We set up shop. We got a studio. We um, we just went for it. We changed the website, and I would say that in the early days, it was very much about upcycling and recycling because we were post two thousand eight. Resources were thin across the board for everyone. Everyone was kind of licking their wounds, you know. And I want to design, but I need to use this, and so desperation as always forces creativity you know and um kind of started to become a trusted entity on a local level but people would call me and they would say well do you do this and can you do that and, and we were looking for this and i 
very quickly realized that I was an odd duck. Like, I mean, we all knew this, my parents knew it, everyone knew it, but I in Louisville, Kentucky, the kind of design that I wanted to do was not what they were used to seeing. They were very much used to seeing traditional crown molding and these expansive white marble kitchens and a lot of horses and a lot of very, very historic traditional homes. And that just was never my jam. It just, it, it wasn't who I was. And also from a business perspective, thank God mom told me I had to get the degree. From a business perspective, you don't want to do what everybody else is doing. I, I think there's such beauty in well-restored traditional historic homes, but that was covered. We have some incredible firms here that do that work. And that just wasn't, that wasn't for me, you know? So Louisville is not the perfect spot for our firm in that we are still the odd duck. But what it has allowed us to do is attract the right clients because now they know who does this work and so seek us out. We've grown into work in Nashville and Cincinnati. Um, we've done some new work, you know, work in New Jersey. We helped with a, a kind of a Northern California home. Um, and, you know, we hope to continue to expand because people see the kind of work that we're doing. But, you know, Louisville, Kentucky is a small market. It's, uh, it's traditional and charming and lovely. And we've had the great honor of working with some incredible businesses here. Um, Urban is huge. We've done some great consulting work, great retail design, um, great commercial design. We've been right in the mix of um, all that has gone on with racial injustice and always tried to land on the right side of that, working in the West End um, and doing work for some of the charities there to support design in Louisville. Um, but to say Ken Louisville, Kentucky is the perfect place, it's my home and I love it, but we're always going to be a little bit the odd duck here. You're listening to Curated Chill. We'll be back in just a minute. Now, more than ever before, it's so important to take care of the fabrics that make up incredible design. High quality furnishings are an investment. As with any investment, you need to protect it. Removing stains is easy with Fiber Seal, and the most talented designers will tell you that caring for the fabric is critical to its longevity. Just about every homeowner will tell you that stains happen. Protecting fine furnishings with Fiber Seal gives your clients the best opportunity for success in stain removal. Designers, recommend to your clients that they protect their fine furnishings with Fiber Seal. Why? Well, Fiber Seal is a suite of products, protective treatments, at home care products, as well as superior customer service. And the most popular products are GreenGuard Gold Certified. Each treatment comes with superior service from a company dedicated to protecting your fine fabrics, carpets, and rugs from stains and environmental factors that damage fine textiles. You can work with Fiber Seal for pre testing before you make your textile selects. They are industry partners of both ASID and the Interior Design Society. 
so. They understand the needs of the design community and how to care for fine furnishings. Visit FiberSeal online to learn more about how it works. You can also connect online FiberSealNortheast.com and on Instagram at FiberSealNortheast. You know, it's interesting too, because from a, from a business standpoint, um, as it relates specifically to design and architecture, Louisville in particular, Kentucky in general, is a really interesting marketplace because it's Southern, but because of races, race, racehorses, um, because of bourbon, because of industry that has sort of found its way to Kentucky from generations ago and, and due to the popularity of those industries, it brings in a lot of different clientele. You know, one of the, one of the clients I worked with, I worked with a celebrity years and years ago who, who has a farm in Danville. And when I went to visit, I was really, I was kind of stunned. Yeah, you've got colonial homes, but you've also got other types of architecture around. You've got a lot of money um, along the Bourbon Trail. And, uh, you know, with all of the, with all the racehorse farms, um, it's really an interesting marketplace. Does that also give you access to the type of clientele that maybe their second, maybe their first home is in Kentucky, but their second homes are all over the place? You know, it does. And I think what's interesting is that Louisville runs on Derby. Some people run on a normal traditional calendar. Kentucky runs on Derby and everything is either started or finished before Derby. So, um, and that's just a normal language, you know? So um, what helps and what's so great is that it attracts international flair. It attracts an entirely different group of people and puts Kentucky on the map in a way that it really otherwise wouldn't be. You know, it, it's, you know, you're going south, you're going north, you're going east and you're going west, but are you stopping right in the middle of the country? And I think bourbon and um, derby and racehorses and the things that are really quintessential Kentucky attract a, just a broad group of people. So the answer to that is yes. We've had the great opportunity to work with people who we met by chance at a party. You know, we met by chance uh, maybe not even going to the races, but being at a farm, you know, the weeks surrounding Derby or going to a home that is a secondary home here. A lot of times the homes are secondary homes. Um, so yes, we, we definitely have, we don't really have a local celebrity flair, but man, do people flock in the kind of money that isn't, the kind of international reference and the kind of resources that are not things they talk about. And so it's always kind of this lovely, quiet mystery to know who you've met and how that will evolve and what it brings into your life. So it is, it is exactly as you stated. It's also really interesting to me, and I, I'm, I'm trying to sort of follow a couple of through lines. I, ha I have this theory and I talk about it all the time. When I started doing interviews with designers, I, I would often ask this question, it's so cringy. You know, when you, when you look back at, at previous work. Um, for me, anyway, I look back at my work and I just, it's just cringy. <laughs> but I used to ask designers, so what's your, what's your style? What's your favorite style? And I realized something. Um, 
it's not a stupid question. It's just a pedestrian one. It's a very, it's a very basic question. It's, it's, it's not really that in depth. What is in depth is that I feel like every um, really amazing designer, architect, product designer, they all have through lines that's affected in their work. And something that we've been talking about here, which I find really interesting, you know, you brought up, you were, you sort of entered in a, in a world of, of visual merchant merchandising and you were staging homes, you know, in, in a, in an interesting marketplace um, that required you to be both thrifty and nimble while being crafty and unique at the same time. So here we find ourselves in an era of design where respecification is the norm, not the fluke, uh, where products are not available. If they are available, especially in Louisville, I'm trying to imagine what some of your shipping costs must be from manufacturers. And at the same time, you're also in an area, geographically speaking, that is both relatively well-picked, but in the outskirts, not picked at all. So you have an opportunity with local resources and local fabricators and local product designers and maybe local workrooms, but you've also got this amazing background in visual mar uh, merchandising. I'm curious, how does that affect the work you're doing now and how are you, how are you making the most of, of those intrinsic assets while dealing with the struggles that every designer in the country, in the world, is facing right now? It's a fun ride, right, right now. Yeah. Um, well, well, I don't know. <laughs> well, I would say this to you. We have never been, and, and this is probably why I don't have that massive, uh, trade following or that influencer vibe. And uh, because we have never been overtly new driven, meaning that I have always, by the nature of my upbringing, looked around me first, right? Look who's here, who can help, who can support. And so what we've been doing in this era of trade is not dissimilar to what we've always been doing. So if I see something and I like it, but I never copy another person's work, but rather, okay, we evolve, right? We evolve, you know, uh, Helen Levy does a great ceramic, but Helen, I, I want that to be bigger or wider, or however we, you know, engage. Um, I look first to our resources and we try to build it locally. We had a number of light fixtures that just were never, they're never arriving. They were just not going to arrive. So we went to a local ceramicist, she made them, um, we enhanced them, it improved, right? Um, the metal work that I love to put into homes isn't something I've ever ordered. So everything, I mean, when I started this career, I, my skin was flawless, I had no wrinkles. Um, not, a, not a gray hair, but every design is hard fought for us. Um, you know, I think that you guys have seen some of our work, but you know, there's a tile wall living in a coffee shop that, you know, every single tile was cut. There wasn't, there wasn't a full tile in it because it was this gorgeous mosaic work. 
And every home and every job that I do is similar to that. Um, but, but right now it's extra. It's extra because the pieces that we bring in that are those easy filler pieces are non-existent, you know? And so we do have to build those. We do lean on our local resources. We do have to go back to upcycling, recycling, reupholstering, and doing all of those things. And, and it won't be anybody's favorite thing to hear, but um, money used to buy timely, efficient outcomes. And right now, I'm having to say to some of my highest end clients, unfortunately, that isn't something I can control. So we do need to reselect. We do need to repurpose. We do need to look at, you know, if we want an end game, if we want to complete this job, we have to innovate. And I think the innovation that's happening across the industry right now is the thing that that will give us the energy to move forward and be better in the future. We, we are now prepared. You know, it's interesting that you mentioned that because the reason, you know, we reached out to you, Curated Chill, we reached out to you, wanted to speak with you because um, your your work, the the narrative, the the voice behind your work is is really amazing. And And by the way, listen, I know this is a podcast, so you can't see it. Even if we were to show it, you know, we've got some video of this, um, but we're probably not going to show too much of the work because we're having a chat about it. But what I would say is if you want to go follow along and look at Natalie's work while we're talking, please do go to the show notes in the podcast and you will find a link to her website. And uh, hopefully Natalie will send some, some, uh, some stills of some of her work and we'll put it into the video so you can go and watch those. But here's what I find so interesting. You know, it's this, it's this matter of fact way in which you say, you know, I've never really, I don't have the influencer vibe. That's not who I am. And to be perfectly frank with you, that's why we reached out. I find that so refreshing that you're like, look, I don't care if I have a million followers. I just want to do the work. I want to do good work. I want to do good work now. I also think, and I, I want your take on this, I feel like any time, and I've talked about this before, the, 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 the last pandemic, you know, the Spanish flu, 1918, 1921, it, uh, incredible elements of design, uh, in, incredible use of new materials came out of that for much of the same reasons that we have here today. This is not the last time this is going to happen. It's going to happen again. There are going to be tariffs in the future. There are going to be, you know, short supply in the future. There are going to be labor shortages and, and, and material shortages in the future. It's, it's part of what we do. What's interesting though, is when it happens on a global scale, like it has this time, when it happens on such a large scale, where it's not like you can't just market shift and go someplace else to get it. It means that you know, you can have more followers than anybody else in the world, but that doesn't mean you've got the creativity to go handle certain challenges and reselect, respecify, recreate if you have to. It sounds like that's what you're doing. And I'm curious what your take is on what happens next. So as the supply chain begins to sort of unkink a little bit, right? And things, things are delivered. Here you are making product now where maybe you didn't do as much of this before is a line 
what's next in your future? Uh, do you do you envision? And I can see that little smile. It's like, yeah, it is. <laughs> but I'm wondering, you know, how do you take what you're learning now and what you're putting into practice now, and and extend that into the future with your with your background in visual merchandising, uh, business, and fashion. You're a doll, and I appreciate you asking the question. And I'm going to go back to the whole influencer thing, just in case there's a person under 40 listening to this. And I would say to you that the gift the pandemic gave me was just to really not give a damn. I, to to go, you know, um, if I were selling X amount of widgets, and I was trying to place ads, and I was trying to be you know, um, I've, I've worked deals with different companies, major retailers, um, and developed kitchens for them to sell their clients and, and do all these things. And, and that mountain just became disinteresting to me because it's not where my customer is. My customer isn't on Instagram. My customer gets Art Digest in their mailbox and says, or Aspire Magazine and says, I saw your work. And P.S. I thought your story was very interesting. And they call me directly. They don't go to my website. They don't do any of those things. They literally, they go to my website, they get my phone number and they call me. More often than not, they don't even submit a, a, you know, an inquiry. They just call the number and they say, hey, look, you know, we want real grown up design that's gonna, is artful, is interesting, uh, has integrity and is going to stand the test of time. And that's who I want calling me. And if, you know, if we never reach a million followers, if I never, you know, X, Y, and Z, I live a happy life because those are the people who really genuinely understand design and are not trying to ask me to put on a slipper that doesn't fit. End of that. I move on, but I just, if anyone out there thinks that that is the gateway drug to their success, it will die. Instagram will die. It will eventually one day go away and, you know, your business will be built on your reputation and word of mouth. And in, in the, at the risk of sounding like an old lady on a broom, I would say do good work just keep doing good work. And if you can share it and it's healthy for you, great. For me, I have to turn off the competitors who I love and are my friends and not see their work. I have to turn off the people that give me, uh, you know, great inspiration for fear that I would mirror it. Um, I have to turn off all that noise and stay in the lane that is my creative compass. Um, that was, I just needed to say that because I have the air and <laughs> this is not the Academy Awards, but I would tell you that's my soapbox speech to any human out there playing the comparison game. Um, the second part of that question is what's next? Um, always, always, always love innovation. Always love working with people. And we have such good people locally who show up and go, you want to do what? How? Where, why, and and we'll, we'll never repeat this. Like we can't mass, we can't make this again. I'm like, exactly, that's exactly right. I don't want to necessarily mass market this. I want to do it and to be beautiful and intimate to this person. So that said, 
I have always wanted to do a bedding line. I think bed, beds and bedding and rest are paramount to your performance. I think it's important. Um, I've always loved creating light fixtures, um, repurposing light fixtures, and also designing furniture. And I design furniture on a very regular basis um, and use a number of craftspeople to create it. COC is a, is a girl gang I love and they kill it. Uh, David Sirfoss is a local uh, art, artisan here in Louisville. And I take something to them in a drawing and they are able to create it. And I think that there is a future where I have a line. Um, it's not a line that's gonna sit at Target. It's not a line for everybody because not everybody will understand it and that's okay. Um, and if it's in my own little world or if it's on a grand stage, Either way, I do think that that's the segue. And I do think that in the end, in the end, so ominous, but <laughs> I do think that there will be a next chapter of design for me. Um, and it will be heavily rooted in consultation and it will be heavily circling back to um, either retail or design or museum curation, it will it will come back to my root and how we chase the light, how we chase the shadows through a space and how we lead people into love of space. Um, but I'm just not quite sure exactly when I jump off of laying out a person's home and literally we call it soup to nuts, but you know, how the front door handle feels down to the kiss, the, the scent and the candle that goes in their home and the chocolate that lives in their drawer, you know, teaching them how to have a lifestyle that they came to me for. I'm not sure the date on that change, but I know it's coming. I feel it in my soul. It's restless. So I love that. And you know, we're gonna we're gonna circle back with you. And again, I just want to remind everyone who's listening. Um, because this is a podcast and I'm sure you want to see Natalie's work. If you go to the show notes, uh, the Curated Chill show notes, you will find a link to Natalie's website and we'll also share some video with, uh, with her work in it. So you can check that out. And Natalie, I am really excited about following you. I, I will... It's not about the uh, how many you have. It's the quality of those that are following you, right? It doesn't matter anymore. Uh, no, it's true. Hitting my hiding my likes, so it doesn't matter. It's all it's all good. Um, and I want to. We will definitely be following along to check out the work you have, except around Derby Day. We definitely won't be. We won't bother you around Derby Day. You know what's interesting, just to close that, is I long ago after living here and, and loving this space and loving Derby and, and loving, I actually really love horses. And we, we've been renovating a home during this pandemic of our own. So everything that my clients are going through, I'm going through in mirrored experience as well. Um, but um, I would say to you that I no longer take clients who want anything done before Derby. I only, I love people who say to me, uh, you know what? It's my house and if the people who are coming 
uh, aren't okay with me and how my house is at this time, then they shouldn't come. And so uh, about 10 years ago, I think I took my last client who said, I want it done before Derby because I thought, you know, if the, your home is filled with all the beautiful things, but we're missing a pillow and you call me Derby morning mad about it, I'm not your girl, right? Break out the champagne and the mimosas and let's keep it moving, so. Okay, so a couple of scattershot questions because yeah. I have to ask, um, do you do you make a good mint julep? I don't. Okay. I don't. I haven't made a mint julep in my life, um, but I do drink well over Derby weekend. Yes. Do you have a favorite bourbon? I do have a favorite bourbon. Actually, we have an entrepreneur here in Louisville um, who has just absolutely floored me and welcomed us in for design and really gets who I am and and has uh, let me come alongside their brand building and it's called rabbit hole rabbit hole bourbon um and I love the company and if you're ever in Louisville the architecture is just off the rails and you should definitely stop in and see what they do there okay when when we come in to Louisville to visit and see the architecture and design, we will go try rabbit hole. I love it. Okay. So next one is, do you, do you, who's, who's your horse in the race? Do you have a horse in the race? Not like own it, but is there anyone you're rooting for? Do you have a, do you have a favorite that you follow? You know, there are a couple of people that own horses that I adore great, greatly. They're very understated horse owners. And by the prox by proxy, I always cheer for their horse. I never pick a horse that isn't tied to a human that I love. So, um, but but I cheer for the underdog every single time. So, okay, that's my answer to that question. You know what? And I cheer for the underdog every single time too. So we have that in common. I love that. <laughs> Sometimes I am the underdog. So well, I have listen, to that, you know. Yeah, um, Natalie, this was really great. Thank you for the time. Of course, of course. And I'll send some things over. Thanks so much. Thank you, Natalie. I absolutely love your work and the stories behind it. From the entire Aspire Design and Home team, thank you to our partners and Curated Chill sponsors for your support. And most importantly, thank you for taking the time to enjoy Curated Chill, the Aspire Design and Home podcast. Thank you for listening to the show and loving sublime design the way we do. For more information, visit us at AspireDesignAndHome.com. Until next time, I'm Josh Cooperman, Director of Broadcast Media for Hudson One Media. Thanks for listening. Come back to chill.